Bibles, if you would now, and if you'll open them to Matthew chapter 7. Today we come to the last two verses of this seventh chapter, and this is the ending of this masterful sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. This has really been a blessed study for me. I had never looked into the Sermon on the Mount in such detail as we have done over the past 16 months. It's been very spiritually enlightening. And there are parts of this sermon that we read often. Uh, We get little bits and pieces of it from other sermons that are preached, but there's nothing like taking every part of this, every statement that's made and breaking it down and then looking at it in light of the entire sermon. And at the end of this study, I would have to say that my reaction to the sermon is the same as those people who first heard it. Now, my reception is different from theirs, uh, different from the original hearers, but my reaction to this sermon that Jesus preached is not different at all. And the last two verses in chapter 7 give us the reaction when Jesus had finished preaching. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In my time as a Christian, I would dare say that I've heard probably more sermons than anyone in this room today. I've heard some funny sermons. I've heard a lot of jokes that have been told. I've heard many sermons that didn't have much of a point. I've heard sermons that are very stirring, and for the 30 minutes or so that the preacher was preaching, it could evoke a lot of emotion. And I've heard sermons that I'm actually sorry that I heard. I've heard memorable sermons. And it might seem a little bit odd to you to say that the memorable sermons are ones that are very hard to come by. I don't even remember most of the sermons that I preached. You know, people tell me all the time, do you remember when you said this and when you preached that? Well, no, I'll have to get a date on that and go back and look it up. So uh, many of them are not very memorable at all. But I have heard some memorable ones. And I, I think it's sad to say that most of the memorable sermons that I've heard, I've actually filed away bits and pieces of those sermons as good examples of the way you should not preach. I mean, I hear a lot of sermons like that, and those are the ones that I remember a lot of times. But this sermon that Jesus preached was memorable in the, most po- in the best possible way. I mean, the reaction of this crowd when Jesus was finished was one of astonishment. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine. So they were astonished. And that word is translated also as amazed or as astounded. They were amazed. They were left with wide eyes and shaking heads. They couldn't believe what they just heard. How could these sayings, how could these things that this man said, how could they come from him? Now, let me take just a moment to help you visualize the scene as Jesus preached this sermon. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus had been traveling around Galilee to many of the synagogues, and there uh, he was healing the sicknesses of many people. From the first place that Jesus preached, the word started going out. People knew what he could do. They heard about his uncommon abilities. The crowd started growing larger and larger each time so that it was almost impossible for Jesus to go anywhere unless there was a large multitude of people that was following. And it wasn't only Galilee that was buzzing about him. The news reached to the northeast into, uh, into Syria. It went down to the south to Judea 
to Jerusalem and other parts of that country. It went over to the east of the Jordan, to the cities of the Decapolis. And so everybody had heard about Jesus, and so people were following him wherever he went. In the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus separated himself from the crowds, and he took his disciples up on a hillside, and there he began to teach them, starting with the Beatitudes. Now, if you travel to Israel today, you can go to the place where Jesus taught. You go up on the hillside there, and it's called the Mount of the Beatitudes. And so Jesus sat down with his disciples. At first, they were the only ones there. But as usual, when people heard where Jesus was, the crowd started gathering once again. And I don't know how much of this sermon that the people heard. Uh, I don't think that they heard the entire thing. I don't know what at point they started listening. But the crowd started to gather, and in those crowds, there was a sprinkling of the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees that were there. And the amazement begins because of the one who was speaking. For 30 years, he had been living among them. He had grown up in Nazareth. That was a city of very little importance. In fact, it was one that had a very bad reputation. Jesus had no formal education. He was the son of a carpenter. And so up until that time, there was really nothing of notoriety in his life. But then he began this very exceptional ministry. He started preaching. He started healing. And it was something that people had never seen before. It was supernatural. And so there were important people that came to see him. People like Nicodemus, that Pharisee who sat on the highest court of Jewish law. And he came to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And so the miracles that he did were very attractive. The large crowds were following him because of miracles. But when he sat down on the hillside on the side of the Sea of Galilee, it wasn't the miracles that attracted the people at that time. It wasn't the miracles that captivated him as he began to speak. Instead, it was him. It was astounding the things that he said. It was that person who said them and the words that he said because he spoke in such an astounding, authoritative way. Now, today I want to give you some words that are found in the Word of Christ. How can we actually describe the teachings of Jesus as these people heard them that day? Well, the first word is the most obvious that we have in the text itself, and that is his authority. He didn't teach as the scribes taught. He he didn't draw on years of education, of listening to the disputations of the scribes and the synagogues. He didn't listen to all the arguments that were made. Those scribes were continually repeating the things that they had heard. They quoted other authorities without themselves actually being authorities. They weren't really experts in the law, but they were really just experts in what other people said about the law. And the people heard enough of distinction here between what Jesus said and what the scribes said that they noticed that Jesus didn't quote from anybody. He he never said, here is what some rabbi said 200 years ago. He didn't have a bibliography at the end of his sermon with all the quotations and all the people that he used and all the authorities on the things that he wanted to talk about. But instead, Jesus spoke with authority as an original speaker has authority. So they wondered, how could he do that? And he made no apologies concerning anything that he said about the scribes. And the people were wondering, how can he say that? Where does he get all of this stuff? And it was noticeable because of the absence of those quotations, not from any source. And it was so uncommon, it was so different, 
It was so different from that teaching method of the scribes and Pharisees because he spoke with authority. He was the authority, and so he said, You have heard that it hath been said. Six times in chapter 5, Jesus said that you have heard that it hath been said. And what he meant, here's what your scribes have said. Here's what your teachers say. They've told you this, but here is what I say. And he never quoted a source to refute any of the statements that they made. And so it was him against hundreds of years of their constant bickering and their interpretations of the law. And he just dispensed with all of that. And with authority, he said, this is the way it is. And if that conflicted with their educated, uh, educated doctors of the law, then so be it, because he would never make an apology for anything that he said. And so when the people heard him speak, they were astonished at it. He was a carpenter. He was from Nazareth. He'd only been teaching just a short time. He never graced any of their religious schools. So how could he speak with such authority? Now, a second word that draws our attention is his certainty. There was nothing dubious in his remarks. He never said, well, here's what I say, but of course I'm only expressing my opinion. And that might be expected of any other teacher. I'm sure that there were arguments in the synagogues where they would defer to others. Some would say, well, you know, you've made a good point there. I've never seen that before. And then they would go and they would bring out their scrolls and they would find something that someone said where it's underlined and they would say, well, here's what it says right here. But Jesus didn't do that. He never listened to any of their arguments. He didn't ask anybody to raise their hand and offer their opinion. He didn't ask for a discussion group to be formed so they could discuss his teachings. But he was a preacher who spoke with absolute certainty in every word that he spoke. He never said, I'm not sure about this. I'll have to get back to you on that. He never said, you're looking for answers? I don't have any answers. I mean, truth is subjective, you know. Uh, I don't have any answers to your questions. And isn't that what you hear so much from modern pulpits today? Isn't that what we hear from the religious pundits? I mean, it's popular today to have church in the round where people just gather around and the preacher stands there and he just throws a few things out and he puts it up for discussion, give you some ideas, and you decide if what he says is actually truth for you. On August the 22nd, after church on Sunday morning, I went home in the afternoon, and I picked up the Sunday newspaper, and there was an article on the front page of the Sunday newspaper entitled, A Refuge for the Spirit. And it had a byline under the heading that said, Faith in Sonoma County. And this story was about Santa Rosa's Center for Spiritual Living. And it was called A Place of Prayer a place of study, of community, called an excellent match for free-thinking Sonoma County. In the fourth paragraph, it said, Don't go in expecting pat answers to the elemental questions about the meaning of life, like who we are and why we're here. The senior minister is then quoted, and he says, We have none of the answers. We teach you what to question. And then the article said, were he to stand at the lectern on Sunday and tell the congregation, this is how it is, the 750-seat sanctuary would empty in a hurry. They have no certainty. They start out in the very beginning by saying, we don't have any answers. And when a minister stands before a, a congregation with no certainty, what good is he? I mean, what good is it? How can you live spiritually without any certainty? Who do you even know who to pray to? 
It's a center of prayer. They say, who do you know to pray to if you don't have any certainty? How many of you would come back if I said today, do you want to go to heaven? Well, I don't have any answers. Don't ask me. I don't know how to go there. I'm not going to place my soul in the hands of somebody who says, I don't have any answers. I have the answers. And I'm very certain about this because it comes from the one who is certain himself. It comes from the one who speaks with authority. Jesus was certain about every word that he spoke. He didn't ask for a dialogue. He didn't ask for discussion groups. But he began to teach and there was certainty in every single word that he spoke. And when you come to Berean Baptist Church, we'll give you the words of Jesus and we will say without any hesitation, this is certain. This is what happens to you if you believe and here's what happens to you if you don't believe and of this we are certain. And we'll give you the way of eternal life. We'll tell you the difference between the broad way and the narrow way. And we are certain where each of those paths lead. Now that leads me thirdly to another word that follows very closely to it. And that's his centrality. Now we notice in chapter 5 that Jesus says, But I say unto you, I say this. And if you'll look in chapter 7 and verse 21, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. In verse 23, Then I will profess to them, I never knew you. In verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. In verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine. And each time Jesus draws attention to himself, he is the center of this teaching. Back in the beginning of the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verse number 11, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And they might have expected him to say, You're blessed when you're persecuted for God's sake. But he didn't say that. He said, For my sake. And there are these continual references where he calls himself Lord. And he says, Do my sayings. And when he says, Persecuted for my sake. All of that calls attention to the assertion that he is God, that he is central, that the authority is his. And if you think about it, he calls such attention to himself that he makes it evident that he is actually more important than what he taught. The person is more important than what he says. I mean, you might not get all the sayings. You may not understand all that Jesus teaches. You may be confused about some things. Uh, you may not understand everything that he tries to tell you. But you're never going to get by without understanding why the person who said this is so important. You can't get by without understanding that he is God. Now, you see, when I preach, I'm never going to tell you that I'm more important than the Bible. And I'm never going to tell you that you need to follow me wherever I go, no matter where I go. The Apostle Paul would never do that. He he said, follow me as I follow Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And so whenever you see Paul using himself as an example, Christ will, will be in that passage. If his name is not mentioned right after following then you'll find it somewhere there that the whole teaching must link up in some way to the Lord Jesus Christ. He always does that. Why? Because Jesus is central. Why do I preach anything from this pulpit? It's because of Christ. Everything that's said in preaching has to some way relate to Christ. And that's why you need to come and hear all the messages, because everything that is expounded is about Christ.
And so if you get bored with hearing the preaching of God's Word, then all I can say to you is you are bored with Christ because He's central. That's what all this is about. So they were astonished at his preaching because he was obviously the center of it all. He drew attention to himself. They would call him Lord because he is Jehovah God. Now let me show you how he is God with a few more words that we find here in his sermon. Fourthly would be his incarnation. Now did you ever see anything in the Sermon on the Mount and the whole time that we went through this, did you ever see anything about the incarnation? Well, in fact, we do find it in chapter 5, verse number 17. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, that's a very strange expression. I am come. Now, the implication of that is that he's otherworldly. So he bursts on the scene with authority. He speaks with certainty. He draws attention to himself with centrality. He's not just an ordinary man who came from Nazareth. As Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God. The miracles showed that he wasn't ordinary. But it wasn't just in the actions that Jesus did. Now we hear it from his own lips because he says, I am come. And that's not the same thing as saying, you know, I think I was born for a reason. I'm trying to find my purpose in life. I know why you're here. Uh, You were born to be a truck driver, and you were born to be a doctor. You were born to be a lawyer. And I'm really trying to figure this thing out. I I must have been born to be a teacher. You know, I'm pretty good at this thing. I have kind of a natural ability, don't you know? No, Jesus doesn't speak like that. That's not his language. He has come. He came into the world. He came from somewhere else. He's superintendent over the world. He's watching from above, and when the time was right, the Bible says, in the fullness of time, he came. That's what Galatians 4, verse number 4 says. He was born of a woman. He's God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He came, and that makes him uncommon. And so the people were amazed by that. They were astonished. He spoke with authority, not as the scribes, because he was not of this world. Fifthly, there is his perfection. Now again, notice chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The whole point of his sermon is to point out their imperfections. Not one of them had ever kept the law. And yet, what was their whole system about? It was about being righteous by the law. How can we be right with God? We keep the commandments. That's what we do. And in fact, they were wholly incapable of keeping the commandments. And so his point in chapter 5 was to keep hammering them with that ineptitude. The most righteous among them was not good enough. Verse number 20 is that key verse that we kept talking about. And there Jesus says that the righteousness of a person who's going to go to heaven has to be better than the best righteousness of any person that's ever lived. The very best can only keep it to a certain level. They don't keep it all. But they must keep it all because that's the requirement according to chapter 5, verse number 48. You have to be perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. And they couldn't do it. They thought they'd kept the law, but all that they had done was to keep their interpretation of the law. Now remember, these, are, these scribes, these are people that are parrots. They mimic 
what they've heard. They're no authorities themselves. themselves. They just keep hearing what others have said, and they keep expounding what others said. And so they go back to a previous time. They go back to another way. They go back to what someone has told them, and they just live according to what they've been told. And if it's not the right way, then naturally they would end up in the wrong way. When the blind follow the blind, they both fall into the ditch. And so they said, we keep the commandments, we don't kill anybody. And Jesus said, hold on just a minute. Anger will cause you to stand before God in the judgment. And they said, well, we keep the commandments, we don't commit adultery. And Jesus said, now hold on just a minute right there, because when you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already with her in your heart. And they said, an eye for an eye. They said, we're holy and we keep the commandments. But Jesus said, turn the other cheek. In other words, they were people of revenge. And Jesus said, you don't have the personal right to avenge yourself. And they said, we love our neighbors as ourselves. And so therefore, we have kept the law. And Jesus said, you're not good enough yet because the Samaritans are your neighbors and the Gentiles are your neighbors and your enemies are your neighbors and you have to love them too. And so he just kept hammering and hammering them over and over again with all of their imperfections. And he drove them down to the ground so that they would stop claiming a righteousness that God would never accept. But notice the distance that he puts between him and them. He said, I am come to fulfill the law. Nobody had ever done that. Nobody had ever kept all the law perfectly. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But not him. He was perfect. Even the tiniest, most minute portion of the law he kept because he was the perfection of the law. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Being made perfect. And that means that he demonstrated perfection. He did that by obedience to every one of God's commandments, and the people were astonished at that. They were amazed by it. Not one sin could ever be laid at the feet of Jesus. And so he was different from the scribes and the Pharisees because everything that he taught, he was the perfect example of. The scribes and the Pharisees, they kept laying burdens on people. They kept throwing all these laws out there and saying you have to keep these different commandments and all these things that they made up. And Jesus said they wouldn't even lift one of their fingers to help somebody have relief from that burden. But Jesus didn't come in that way. He came to take burdens away because he said, Come unto me, in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so that perfection makes him God. No one has ever been perfect. No one has ever kept every jot and tittle of the law. No one could possibly fulfill it all. And so that was amazing. They were astounded at him. Well, that brings us to another word. Sixthly would be his satisfaction. How does one person fulfill all of the law? Now, remember, these are people that are still living under all of those Old Testament laws. Uh, Today, we're saved in Christ because he has fulfilled the law for us. But as they look at Jesus, and as they listen to him preaching on that day, all of the Old Testament laws are still in effect. All of the dietary laws are still there. All of the moral law is there. All of the judicial laws are there. And probably of greatest importance to them was that all of the sacrificial laws are still there. 
Sacrifices have to be brought. Those sacrifices are for atonement. They had to be repeated all of the time because those sacrifices could never take away sin. So that every year they kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And when Jesus came and he healed lepers, he told them to do what? He said, you need to go to the priest and you need to present yourself to the priest. And why did he do that? It was because they were still living under the law. They had to show themselves that they had been cleansed. And so he said, you need to fulfill the Mosaic law. You go and show yourself to the priest. And you'll find that when we get into chapter 8. But Jesus said, though, that he came to fulfill the law. That means that he came to make men righteous. That means that he would be a sacrifice. He would be an eternal sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that would satisfy all of the law. He would fulfill it. The Apostle Paul said, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And perhaps you don't see the importance of Jesus' words when he says, I have come to fulfill the law. When he says, Not one jot or one tittle shall go without being fulfilled then that means that Jesus then must be a sacrifice, that he must be the one that would satisfy the law in that way too. If he's going to fulfill it all, then he has to be a sacrifice for sin. And so not only did Jesus teach his perfect life, but he was showing them that his perfect life would stand good for all of their imperfections. He would become the sacrifice for sin. He would be the one who would fulfill the law. And so his righteousness is actually that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees that he mentioned in chapter 5, verse number 20. And so here we have the incarnation of Christ, God in the flesh, who came to keep all of God's law perfectly so that he could be a suitable sacrifice and satisfy God for sin. So no wonder they're astonished at him. They were amazed because he spoke with authority. He was not as the scribes. He was nothing at all like them. They weren't even close to him. Nobody could do the things that he did, and of that I am certain. And so with what power and authority and majesty and splendor that Jesus spoke, with what perfection, what love that he had that he would come and fulfill the law by making himself a sacrifice for sin, one offering for sin that satisfies God forever. He is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And so there is no other place to go for righteousness that God requires but Christ. This is why Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Seventhly, we see his judgment. Now with all of the foregoing, it is evident that he's God. He's otherworldly. He must become incarnate so that he can live a demonstrated life of obedience. He must become incarnate so that he could become an offering that would satisfy God for sin, that he would take care of all the sacrificial requirements of the law. And so if he is God, then that also means that he has the right of judgment. If he is God, that means that he is the determiner between heaven and hell. And they were astonished at this because he claimed that right also. In the 7th chapter, verses 22 and 23, he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Many will say to me in that day, 
Lord, Lord. You remember those verses? How could you forget that? I mean, we spent weeks dealing with this, didn't we? That's part of that ongoing self-examination. Are you truly a child of God? That's part of the examination. And he says, in that day. And he means by that, in the day of judgment. And that's mind-boggling. We can't really even fathom the depths of that statement at their astonishment when he made this claim. This poor carpenter who had no place to call his own, this uneducated fellow that came from this detested city called Nazareth, he's the one who says that he will sit on a throne in glory and he will call the entire world to come before him and they will sit at his feet as he passes judgment upon them. He's the one who has control of their eternal souls. Now, just a few months ago, there was this huge furor over the appointment of our last Supreme Court nominee. And they had this great furor because she had no experience as a judge. Now, I'm going to leave that argument for the politicians, but at least she was a law professor. I think maybe she was a professor at Harvard, which to some people, that's the pinnacle of a law education. People at Yale don't agree with that, but uh, people in Harvard Law uh, believe that Harvard Law, that's the pinnacle. Now, the Supreme Court sits on some very important cases. And unfortunately, in my opinion, they usurp the authority of the Constitution by making law rather than interpreting the law. And that's as political as I'll get today. Uh, But they sit in judgment of some very important cases. But there are no decisions that are made by the Supreme Court that will last into eternity. They don't have that power. The Supreme Court will collapse into the pile of the black dust of their robes when Jesus comes in a perfect kingdom of righteousness. But here you have Jesus the carpenter. He has no black robe. He has no fancy clothes. He doesn't wear the garments of the Pharisees with their broad borders in order to contain all their phylacteries. He doesn't wear a leather box on his head with the scripture in it. He was just a lowly commander. Just a lowly man. And the Bible says that he will sit in judgment. And he said that he will. And he will tell some people that they can enter into eternal life. And others he will tell, you are on your way to destruction in hell. And that was amazing. That was astonishing. He didn't teach as a scribe. They never claimed that kind of authority. But with boldness and brashness and confidence, he did. He made no apologies. He said, I am the judge, and I'm going to judge whether or not you have kept these sayings of mine. And then he went on and told a story to illustrate that. He said, I will judge you. And then he gave this famous story of the wise man and the foolish man. There are two builders with two houses. One builds his house on a rock, and the other builds his house on the sand. And he claimed... He made the declaration that his teachings are the solid rock on which you must build your life. He said, you must stake your life on what I say. And he said, when the storms of judgment come, if you have not built your life on my sayings, if you have not kept my word, then your life will be destroyed. And that was a very simple illustration. It was astonishing, amazing. He's going to sit in judgment and every mouth will be stopped. And there won't be any adequate defense in the day of judgment if you have not kept these sayings of Jesus. Well, that brings me to an eighth word. Number eight is his exhortation. The last 13 verses of the sermon are given to explain the exhortation. And the exhortation is given in verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The broad way is that super highway to hell. And I'll be quite frank with you right now, because Jesus was frank. Each of these words that I've given you are very blunt, they're very candid. And the candor, the directness of Jesus is that he makes no allowances for any other path to heaven but him. And surely that has to be evident by his incarnation, by his perfection, by his satisfaction for sin. There can't be any way to heaven but him. The Center for Spiritual Living may not have answers for you, but Jesus does. Either you get with him or you don't get to heaven. In that article that I quoted earlier, the writer says that the senior minister is as likely to quote from the Hindu Bhagavad Gita as he is from the Bible. And in that article, the senior minister says, neither one is to be taken literally. Now, I agree with him on the first part. You don't want to stake your life on the Hindu Bhagavad Gita. Don't take that literally. But I disagree on the second part, and that is that every word that's written in the Bible is God's word. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's with authority. It was spoken with authority because Jesus is the authority. And he says you either get with his program or you will not survive his judgment. There is a narrow way to heaven, folks, and it is not inclusive. It is not tolerant of any other religion. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no one who goes to heaven but by him. Now, if you go back to chapter 6 and you review the material on the Lord's Prayer probably the most famous passage that you'll find in the Bible. And you can't come away from an in-depth study of the Lord's Prayer without seeing the exclusivity of the narrow way. There is only one way that you come to God. And in fact, you can't have missed this through the entire sermon, that Jesus gives them the consequences of their failed righteousness. These are people that are on the broad way to destruction. And believe me, folks, despite the liberal preacher who tries to do away with it, they understood what he meant by destruction. They knew that he meant that there was a literal burning fire of hell that they were going to go to if they weren't on the right way. And the only way that they could escape it was to go through him because he is the straight gate and he is the narrow way. Now finally we come to one more word and this one really lies outside the scope of the sermon itself and it speaks more directly to the two verses that are under consideration and that is his reception. Yes, they were amazed. Yes, they were astonished. Yes, they were astounded at what he said. They saw a difference in him. And so it was now clear to them that he meant to say that he is the straight gate. He meant to say that he is the narrow way. He meant to say that he's the rock on which they must build their lives. He meant to say that he is the judge. And he meant to say that he is Jehovah God. He meant to say all of that. He left no room for misinterpretation. And this wasn't at all the same kind of teaching that they had received from the scribes. He was authoritative, and they acknowledged it as such. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And the scribes would always argue about trivial matters. Did you wash your hands before you ate? They argued about whether you had to do that. They argued about whether... You had to bring the tiniest seed that you received in the harvest and pay a tithe off of it. They argued about whether you left a pin 
in your clothing when the tailor mended them and you carried that pin around on the Sabbath day. That was too much of a burden to be borne. And so they argued over trivial things like that. But Jesus always spoke about weightier matters. He said, what about life? What about death? What about eternity? He has the answers to all those questions. Why are you here? He can answer that one. What is your purpose in life? He knows the answer to that one too. And yet for that profound difference that they saw between the teachings of Jesus and the scribes over against all of that, over against the authority of his preaching, what did they do? They ignored the sermon. Now they kept on with the miracles for a little while. They followed him because of those, but they never actually heeded the message of Christ. And so they proved the words of his exhortation. He said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few, F-E-W, few, there be that find it. Astonishment, amazement, but sadly there was no reception of it. They reacted with utter surprise that one who was so lowly could speak so greatly. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now I pray that today that a reaction is not all that you have to the words of this sermon. There has to be reception of it. Authority, certainty, centrality, incarnation, perfection, satisfaction, judgment, exhortation, all of that is to bring you down to one all-important factor, and that is reception. You must receive what you've heard. And the question is for all of us, have you trusted Christ? Do you really know who he is? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? See, there is no other way that you can get to heaven. Upon the authority of God's word, I can tell you that. I'm certain of it. And I'm also certain that the word of God says that you can be saved today by believing in him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so you have to call on his name. Jesus is central. No other way will do. And so upon his authority... We ask you today to trust him as Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we're so thankful for the study that we've had for these many months in the Sermon on the Mount. And our reaction to what Jesus said is exactly like the people when they heard it originally. They were astonished. They were amazed at this. And we can't do anything other but to look at the words of Jesus and see how hopeless that we are, to see where he came from, who he is, to see the supernatural ability, to see the words that he spoke, to hear everything that came from his lips. We have to come away with that same amazement. But we don't want to leave with just a reaction. We want to leave with reception of it. So, Lord, I ask that you would speak to hearts today. None but your Holy Spirit can convict a sinner of his sins. None but the Spirit can open the eyes of a sinner and cause them to believe in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of sinners today. I pray for your people that we would not just be hearers of this word, but doers, exactly as Jesus said. I pray for all of us as Christian people, those saved here today, that we will heed the words of this sermon, keep them in our hearts, go over it over and over again and confirm that we truly are your people. Bless as we sing today. We ask your richest blessings upon everyone here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.